Hello, AJT readers. This is Josh Levitsky. I'd like to welcome you to the June version of AJT Highlights. With me, as always, is Roz Manon from the University of Nebraska Medical Center. And we have a guest today, Sharad Wadwani from UCSF, who is going to be discussing his article in the June issue. So I'd like to welcome you both here. Thank you very much. Great. So as always, let me just go through. We have four articles today, three in clinical science and one in basic science. And just to go over them one by one, the first will be discussed by Dr. Wadwani, and that's entitled Neighborhood Socioeconomic Deprivation is Associated with Worse Patient and Graft Survival Following Pediatric Liver Transplantation. And then there's a editorial by McElroy accompanying that. And then I will be discussing the paper uh, entitled Immediate Administration of Antiviral Therapy After Transplantation of Hepatitis C Infected Livers into Uninfected Recipients, Implications for Therapeutic Planning by Bethia et al. And then Roz will be discussing a kidney transplant paper entitled Targeted Donor Complement Black Blockade After Brain Death prevents delayed graft function in a non-human primate model of kidney transplantation. And there's an editorial accompanying that. And then finally, Roz will finish with a lung transplant paper entitled Initial Lung Transplantation Experience with Uncontrolled Donation After Cardiac Death in North America by Healy et al., also with an editorial. So nice mixture of papers here. So Sharad, uh, why don't you take it away and tell us about your work? Great. Well, thank you, Josh and Ross, for having me on this podcast. And thank you, Dr. Kirk, uh, for selecting our work as an editor's choice paper. We're very excited to have the opportunity to, to discuss our findings. So I'm going to jump right in. We wanted to better understand how neighborhood context impacts craft and patient survival in children after liver transplant. First, I want to provide a little background as to why we asked this question. Fortunately, children are living longer and longer after liver transplant, which is reflective of the tremendous surgical and immunosuppression advances that have been made. However, we know that long-term outcomes for these children continue to remain suboptimal. About two-thirds of children have evidence of graft dysfunction or an immunosuppression comorbidity within 10 years after transplant. Just to reiterate, about two out of every three children who receive a liver transplant transplant have some morbidity in the first decade. What's unique to pediatrics is that we're striving for our patients and their grafts to survive for seven or eight decades. So as we get further past transplant, I think it's helpful to think of these children within a chronic disease model. We know from other chronic illnesses that the social determinants of health have a large impact on health outcomes. And when I say social determinants of health, what I'm referring to is where a child lives, plays, learns, and sleeps. One such determinant is our neighborhood. We can learn a lot about a child's neighborhood by matching U.S. Census Bureau data to a child's home zip code or address. And this data can help provide insight into where a child lives and manages her chronic disease. We previously found that children from the most socioeconomically deprived neighborhoods had about twice the rates of medication non-adherence than other children after transplant. And so in this study, we sought to see if these findings extended the rates of graft failure and death after transplant. So what we did was use the SRTR database, which as most listeners are aware, has data on every child who undergoes liver transplant in the United States. 
We identified about 2,500 children who had a liver transplant between 2008 and 2013. We then linked the patient's home zip code to a neighborhood socioeconomic deprivation index. This index incorporates six variables specific to a neighborhood available from the U.S. Census Bureau, including neighborhood rates of poverty, educational attainment, public assistance usage, and number of vacant households. Our primary outcomes were episodes of graft failure and death, and we looked at these outcomes over the first 10 years after transplant. I'd like to highlight a couple of our key findings. First, we found similar graft survival and patient survival rates for all children across neighborhood deprivation within the first year. And I think these results speak to what I alluded to earlier. The first year after transplant is when most post-surgical complications occur. However, as children survived past the first year, we started to see that graft failure and death rates were higher for children from high-deprivation neighborhoods. The index we used has a range of 0 to 1, and we found that with each 0.1 increase in the deprivation index, children had a 12% increased hazard of graft failure and a 10% increased hazard of death. So these findings suggest that ineffective chronic disease management may be contributing to these disparities, and we might be able to apply knowledge from other chronic illnesses to improve long-term outcomes for these children. The second finding I'd like to highlight is the relationship between race and outcome. We found that black children compared to white children had a 41% increased hazard of graft failure and a 58% increased hazard of death after liver transplant. This effect of race on outcomes decreased slightly when we included deprivation in the models, suggesting that this relationship is mediated in part by socioeconomic deprivation. And when we think about race and outcome, we conceptualize that race is a social construct, closely related but distinct to socioeconomic deprivation. Therefore, we wonder if these findings might be due to interpersonal or institutional discrimination, bias, mistrust in the healthcare system, or increased adversity over time. In contrast, we hypothesize that neighborhood socioeconomic deprivation may capture economic hardships such as financial strain, transportation challenges, and diminished access to medical care. In order to overcome this disparity, we really need to understand the unique challenges faced by these children and families. So what are the implications of these data? I would argue that the associations we uncovered highlight a need to better understand how the social determinants of health impact outcomes for children undergoing transplant. In the accompanying editorial, the authors made several great points. One point that they stressed was that the advances in surgical technique and medical management are not enough to bridge the gap we see across neighborhood deprivation. They really called the transplant community to action to uncover in more depth the environmental and social contributors to these disparities. And so while the Neighborhood Deprivation Index provides us with information about a child's neighborhood context, it does not provide us with information specific to a child's household. So what's the next step? To develop effective solutions, we need to better understand the key household-level drivers of these outcomes. For example, is it because of financial strain, such as housing instability, food insecurity, or transportation difficulties? Or is it because these families have decreased health literacy? I think this question is critically important in order to inform intervention strategies. So to try to answer these questions, we are establishing a multi-center prospective cohort to measure an array of social determinants of health to figure out which determinants impact outcomes after transplant. 
After that, I think we need to engage key stakeholders to figure out what the barriers are to addressing some of these needs. As the authors of the editorial suggested, I believe the transplant field will need to adapt a suite of interventions that are directed to a child's particular social determinants in order to realize equitable outcomes. And with short-term outcomes being as good as they are today, I really think the time is now to start to develop such interventions. Great. Thanks, Sarah. That's really important work. I think uh, it, it also speaks to just some of the inequities we have in our in transplantation. Uh, it's a difficult thing to overcome, but I'm glad you are tackling this issue you know, uh, directly. I guess my one question I have is, you mentioned interventions uh, that you're thinking about, and I'm wondering if you have some ideas about that, and um, are there potentially interventions that have worked in other areas of pediatrics um, that maybe have a larger number of patients like uh, juvenile diabetes or other other areas that interventions have worked to kind of narrow these barriers, these socioeconomic barriers to healthcare that might be applied to transplant. I'm just wondering if you could comment on that. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for for asking that. I think there has been a lot of work done. Certainly a couple of our co-authors, Andy Beck and Uma Kotagal, have done a lot of work at Cincinnati Children's to close the equity gap with regard to asthma outcomes um, for children. And you know, so so one example that I, I can give you is some of the work that they did um, targeting two high uh, high risk neighborhoods. And so when a child comes in with an asthma exacerbation from one of those high risk neighborhoods, it it triggers an automatic multidisciplinary huddle. Mm-hmm. Um, and that huddle sort of allows the health system to a team to come together to try to understand what the underlying causes of the child's asthma exacerbation are. And um and then they're able to deploy certain interventions like medical legal counseling if there's concern for uh, uh, housing violations or if they're living in substandard housing, they can get legal advocacy and, and different types of interventions like mm-hmm. that. And they've, they've been able to, to decrease uh, the total inpatient bed days and total hospitalization for um, some of the most vulnerable children that they serve. So I, I think, you know, I think trying to figure out what the actual social needs are that the children have and then and then trying to tackle those head on. Mm-hmm. It almost seems like in a transplant program, you may want to identify, you know, different levels of risk in the post-transplant setting and those children who are at maybe higher risk for these types of difficulties have more resources dedicated towards them um, or, you know, kind of more of a comprehensive plan than, you know, a lower risk individual that may do, you know, that just has, has sort of the standard of care. Um, yeah. yeah, something like that, it sounds like. Yeah, exactly. I think, um, you know, being able to identify risk, you know, whether that's medical or social risks can really help us determine mm-hmm. who to allocate the most resources to. And so I think that's where we're likely to see you know, interventions be the most effective for post-transplant. Right. I, I thought, you know, this whole paper was 
quite interesting, particularly the implications of their sensitivity analysis. But I'm a nephrologist, and we've known this for a very long time. And, and one of the things that's more apparent in the kidney literature is that pediatric patients who grow into their teen years have the highest rate of rejection. And again, it's associated with non-adherence um, as well as SES. But did, did you see a trend or any differences? Were you able to I know your patient population is quite young, but you did have quite a bit of follow-up. So I presume some of these kids probably were teenagers at some point. Could you tell any implication of age on this outcome? That's a really good question. In this in this paper specifically, we did not look at you know the teenage subgroup, but we do know also in pediatric liver, um, as you mentioned, that adherence becomes a huge problem for in the teenage years. But um, we didn't look specifically at at teenagers in this in this study. Okay. Okay. Well, I think we have to move on. Thanks, Sharad. The Next paper is the one I'm going to present, which is the group out of um, MGH, uh, led by Emily Bethia, and it's the immediate administration of antiviral therapy after transplant of hep C infected livers into uninfected recipients. And so um, this was a small study, but I think nevertheless very important, that describes an experience that MGH has had with giving antiviral therapy essentially immediately after a liver transplant in patients who are receiving a hep C infected organ. Um, I'm talking about negative recipients. And uh, just as a little bit of background, I think we all know we this, this last year to two years has seen a number of papers published on the efficacy of direct acting antiviral therapy in all organ transplants if in patients who receive a NAT positive organ, um, particularly if it started relatively soon after the transplant. But it's well known that if the longer you wait, the higher risk of transmission of the virus. Uh, there have been some cases of fibrosis and cholestatic hepatitis C, some renal issues, um, MPGN if antiviral therapy isn't started right away. And so this group um, was very forward thinking in uh, coming together with a protocol that they essentially got uh, or investigated the ability to give uh, antiviral therapy right after transplant. And um, one of the, the biggest barriers to being able to do that is that you have to, number one, get it on your formulary so you can start it as soon as possible right after the transplant. And then number two is you have to get insurance approval from the patient's insurance. And so this group put together a protocol using um, GP, which is, you know, the, um, one, of the, one of the antiviral regimens that's very uh, commonly used that is pangenotypic. And they enrolled their patients uh, who were okay with getting a NAT positive liver donor. And they sought they, they um, asked the insurance companies for a pre-authorization to cover antiviral therapy. And if they weren't able to cover it, which I'll get to a little bit later, the hospital got approval, some funds approved to cover the therapy for their patients, again, through the hospital. They basically enrolled people who were getting hepatitis C 
positive organs. Initially, it's antibody positive, but the ones that were NAT positive were started on antiviral therapy immediately after transplant, meaning within five days. And I think the average was about one and a half days uh, because they had it on their formulary and they had done the work up front to get approval to um, give the recipient therapy. And then they had um, some patients that were antibody positive, but not negative, the donors. And so those were also followed and treated uh, once uh, viral trans or, or evaluated for viral transmission. If any of them had a transmission, they were started on antiviral therapy later. So a little bit of a different group. I think the so so the the total number of patients that were included in this study was 14. So it was a small study, but nevertheless very novel. Nine of the patients were started uh, immediate who who were who had um, NAT positive organs were started on antiviral therapy, as I mentioned, very soon, almost within median of 1.7 days after transplant. And they were all given 12 weeks of therapy uh, with GP. Um, and this is in part because this is a liver transplant. There's a high viral load and there's a high amount of viral particles within the liver, as opposed to non-liver transplants where you may be okay with a shorter duration. And then there were five livers that were procured from hepatitis C antibody positive, NAT negative donors, and only one of those became NAT positive and was treated. So the good news is that everybody cleared the virus 100%. The sustained virologic rate was, was, uh, was, was 100%. So nobody had a transmission. So there wasn't, um, any of this, uh, potential for complications due to transmission. And the, the main thing the authors focus on is the amount of effort that was put into getting insurance approval for, for GP. They mentioned that, um, it was a major challenge that, uh, this is the author's quote, the quote from the paper is considerable effort was required for each patient determining the need to submit for urgent review, draft appeal letters, request peer to peer consultation and work to overturn initial payer denials. They were able to get seven of the patients, seven of the nine approved for insurance, but it took them a long time and two of them were denied and the hospital covered it. Mm. And so I think this uh, is an important study because it shows essentially what we really want to do with these patients, which is we know that NAT positive organs, they transmit uh, particularly in a liver, but other organs a hundred percent of the time. So it doesn't make a, a lot of sense to hepatologists to wait for the virus to be transmitted to then apply for insurance and get it treated post-operatively at a later time. There can be significant delays, although I do think this is getting better. Um, it makes a lot of sense to transplant the patient, have it on formulary and start it as soon as possible. But this insurance issue, which I think this is not a like a study from several years ago, this is studies, this, these patients were transplanted within the last year or two. I, they're still, they're still real. And I think this is a real calling to get this advocated for. And um, I know other centers are starting to do this, but it does take a lot of effort 
Um, on the other hand, once this is set in place, it makes it very easy to treat the patients and not worry about it afterwards, not worry about any complications. And I imagine this will um, uh, go uh, into other organs too. Uh, I know we had pre previously presented the, um, the kidney transplant paper where a very short course was given and it was effective in most, but some relapsed and then a treatment was given for longer. But that was also an approach to just um, give it right up front. So I think things are changing and I'm glad this paper, they, the authors and uh, their center did this to show that it really works. And hopefully it's, a, it's kind of a calling to insurance companies to, to realize that this is a much better approach and it's probably cost effective too. Uh, in terms of uh, basically eliminating complications. So, I, I, I think your points, you know, Josh, are really well taken. I, it's frustrating, uh, you know, I'm in the kidney space, but to, you know, reviewing the, our clinical protocols and saying this just seems like it's a no-brainer, and yet this has had repeated pushback by insurance companies, and, and then the hospital has, I think, a number of centers have gotten hospitals to say, okay, we'll cover it until it happens, but then the person never gets viremic because you're doing it preemptively, and uh, at least for the kidney. And um, I think their outcomes are great. It, I think it's another, I, I, I agree with you. I, I think that the, the liver transplant community needs to start making this maybe their call to action because it makes no sense to me why this happens. And, and as you point out, this is a really great, strong group of clinicians and clinical investigators at MGH. And, and Christian Rogers, who, you know, was a, was a COP leader for the pharmacy COP is phenomenally good. And they know this paperwork and yet it's just really frustrating. So I don't know if there's any update in terms of, you know, focusing on this. I think we all got COVIDed and so we forget about yeah. Frustrations that, you know, and things that could be fixed. And the other thing I'm not excited about, about, you know, viremia is people are closely interacting with their loved ones after transplant. And I always keep saying with hep C, well, you know, it's not like you're shaking their hand and you get it. There are ways of getting hep C. And it doesn't seem to make any sense to have that as a risky transmission within a family household or a significant other um, when there's obviously curable treatment. So, yeah. Anyway, we'll, we'll move on, but I think this is a real step in the right direction. The way that's the way I look at it. And I think there'll be more to come with these types of approaches, but why don't we, uh, move to maybe your kidney then lung paper. Yes. The, order so you want to do uh, the first paper is a, I'll call it a translational science paper by Juan Genobedia. And I hope I didn't murder that name and, and Luis Fernandez and colleagues at, uh, university of Wisconsin. Uh, and this looks at a preclinical model of uh, brain death and, and, and ischemic and warm and cold ischemic injury in a rhesus monkey model to study um, targeted complement blockade specifically with a C1 esterase inhibitor. And I think this group, uh, these listeners, you're very familiar with the issues of predominantly uh, brain death as an inflammatory injury in the donor. Um, and then subsequent static or even profuse cold storage and prolonged cold ischemic time being associated with delayed graft function. And the frequency of DGF is certainly not going down 
uh, in the in the U.S., it's anywhere between 25 to 35 percent of kidneys. It's associated with acute graft reject, graft uh, with acute cellular rejection and and shorter long term death sensor graft survivals. And you know, from a from a from my perspective, there's been tons of rodent studies, and the translation to humans has been continued near misses where. There's promising preclinical data, at least in a rodent model, but we failed to succeed in man. And most recent examples of that are the use of eculizumab, which is anti-C5, which is downstream uh, complement activator, that which is involved in the MAC uh, the, the formation, and also uh, anti-P53, which looked like a very, very promising uh, therapy. And so these authors took on this challenge, and, and again, remembering that the use of C1 esterase inhibitor is really a proximal inhibitor for complement activation. There's three pathways of complement activation, the classical, the alternative, and the mannose binding. And C1 esterase has a significant impact on both the, the classical and the mannose binding lectin pathway. And certainly in animal and mouse models, for example, uh, this appears, you know, this treatment appears to limit uh, ischemic injury and, and rejection. So the objective here was really to look at this in a very preclinical model. So they use rhesus monkeys that were, I call them older, and they are. I mean, they're 15 to 22 years old. They use them as a donor um, and then transplanted them into relatively younger uh, rhesus macaques that were ABO compatible and MHC mismatched, but these animals were not sensitized. They, they did the appropriate predictive virtual cross matches. They induce brain death in these older donors. And I won't go into the specifics. You can read the methods. It's not pretty. And then there's a period of time where they support the brain dead monkey for about 20 hours. And then they recover the kidneys and put them in cold UW solution and then in static conditions. In this study, they had they uh, they manipulated, though, the brain dead donors. They had three groups. They had a vehicle control. They had a heparin group. And I'll tell you why in a minute. And then they had a group that they administered C1 esterase inhibitor with heparin. Heparin apparently augments or facilitates the function of C1 esterase inhibitor. And they gave the donors prior to retrieval six doses of C1 esterase inhibitor. And I'll cut to the chase because you can read the paper. Importantly, uh, the treatment with C1 esterase inhibitor, uh, all those six recipients did not develop delayed graft function but there was delayed graft function in seven of 10 in the control. Now, there are the skeptics out there saying, but it's only 16 monkeys, Dr. Manon. How could that be so few? So recall that these are very expensive studies. It's not like a crate of mice where the cost is relatively contained and it's easy to manage them. These animals are, are really complicated. There's a lot of prep for them. Then you have to do the transplant um, itself. And so it's, it's more than, it, it's the donor manipulation, which is complicated, and then the recipient transplant. So when you see astounding numbers like this in a very small group, the, the impact is quite good. And in addition to the lack of, of DGF, there was a significantly lower nadir or peak of serum creatinine, and then lower serum creatinines overall at four to six days post-transplantation. And they also did some urinary NGALs, a biomarker of acute kidney injury, and that was reduced. They had some other markers where they looked and saw an, uh, an effective C1 esterase inhibitor or blockade. And those include a, a, a reduction in the histological deposition of this MAC complex, the C5B9 complex. 
and C3B, um, a reduction in systemic TNF and MCP1 levels, but not IL-6 or IL-8, reduction in circulatory um, complement MAC, which I guess can be circulating. Just to, to summarize, I think it's very compelling preclinical data in this, you know, kind of, you know, very well managed donor managed study of, of primates, which is a step closer to man. And again, you could say mice are monkeys and monkeys are people and show me the, you know, is that going to work in, in man? And um, the editorial, I think, that accompanied it by the Poitiers uh, group and Raphael Tullier highlight that this is very promising. It's a small study, but most of these non-human primates are. And they also highlighted some of the other studies that have been done today, looking at a, a pig uh, transplant with prolonged um, warm and cold ischemia as well. But again, I think one thing to point out before you go out and buy stock um, is that this really is involved in the donor. And as you know, and we've, we've talked with Sandy Fang in the past, you know, donor management studies have issues. And so to launch a clinical trial using this um, in brain dead donors preemptively would, would be complicated. And in addition, it would have to take the buy-in of the donor hospital to commit and also to recognize that this treatment doesn't affect the quality of other organs and that patients, you know, on the waiting list would be comfortable in receiving uh, an organ that has had sort of this infusion. But I have to say that the other um, human interventions have been poster or peri-reperfusion and have really not had an impact, whether that's because of the study design, which may be part of it, the lack of prediction of DGF in humans as easily because there's a lot of clinical factors. And there's also, you know, it's not like we take both kidneys out of retrieval and pop them into people. There's some travel aspects or there may not be equivalent um, cold static time or there's pump perfusion. But I thought it was really kind of an, uh, an inspiring um, preclinical study by a group that's very talented um, to find something that may actually be workable in a model that I think more likely resembles humans. Yeah, I, I agree. I thought it was a really great preclinical study with a lot of potential applications, but you're right, it's devil in the details to try to move this to human transplantation. But there are people out there, I think, you know, that are ready for the match. And I think they, that we've got to start, you know, looking in that direction and really pushing these concepts. And perhaps in some of these OPOs, you know, donor service areas where the OPO really fulfills one or one or two major transplant centers, this and you could do this kind of work mm -hmm. where um, the recipient, the most likely recipient hospitals are nearby. And, you know, you, you could have agreements. I mean, that's how they did that sort of donor management hypothermia and the, and the donor uh, study because there was sort of buy-in to all the groups that were going to mm -hmm. be working with um, those individuals. So I'll move on to the last paper, Josh, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah. This is another, this is like another, I got like the wow papers because it was like, really, really? Hmm. But um, this is my hats off to Toronto and the uh, lung transplant program. This is by uh, Andrew Healy, um, and uh, the entire group um, at Toronto, this is, um, and I'm not a lung transplanter, but I sure know how tough it is. But this is uh, the initial lung transplant experience using uncontrolled donation after cardiac death. So this is really, I'll just summarize by saying this is a proof of concept study that you can use an uncontrolled uh, DCD donor for lung transplant. It's been reported in Europe. 
uh, very limited information. Um, in Europe, they used a sort of a regional perfusion system. But again, this is a little bit different. And the reason you can sort of get away with this if you don't understand anything about, well, the person's dead for three hours, how can they even have viable tissue, is to remember that that the, this organ, the lung, doesn't require blood perfusion per se, that it's really their aerobic metabolism is via perfusion through the alveoli. So the way this actually worked is they identified individuals with uncontrolled um, cardiac death uh, pending. They got 147 referrals. They approached 44 donor families. They got consent for 30 individuals. Um, and basically um, what they do is they actually, after the patient's declared dead and they have consent from the family, they actually go and actually inflate, inflate these lungs and keep them inflated and oxygenated that way. And then um, once the, cons the consent is through, they actually can take the organs out and retrieve them and put them on um, their extra ex vivo lung perfusion device. And so the, though they had, a, you know, a very small number of organs used, five in the end, which demonstrated about a 17% clinical utility, four of the five individuals receiving these manipulated organs survived. The other person didn't. They had a lot of issues and eventually succumbed to sepsis. But this really heralds, you know, sort of a daring kind of, you know, ability to push the envelope. And this group has pushed the envelope a few times. And I think the editorial by the Leuven group really, I think, you know, hats off to them saying, you know, this was simple, it's safe, it has an improvement in potential recovery. The real issue here is, again, in the details, it's the logistical burden of how to do this and the, util and the utilization rate of these organs, which was low. Um, and the Leuven group felt that the utility of these organs would have been higher if the consent time to death time, the so-called no touch period, were shorter. And again, remember, like in places like Spain, where they've been, you know, suggesting uncontrolled uh, DCD, there's presumed consent. So, you know, unless some family member shows up while all this is going on, says, no, 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 it's really yes, 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 we're in the United States, as you know, it's it's presumed, un, you know, you have to get consent from the family to do this. So, again, there's, uh, you know, just a nice kind of exciting thing to be looking at. They have some um, it, the radiographs sort of show all and, and some discussion of use of EDLP uh, measurements, which help them determine, based on their experience, what would be a useful organ. Right. Well, yeah, really interesting. And I wonder... If this practice will be, you know, if this is just kind of a one-off or, or, uh, or just this group, or we're going to start seeing this being practiced more regularly, like in the next five to 10 years? I think that's a good question. Um, I think certainly you have to have a certain risk threshold. And I think you have to have, as you point out, like with your hep C paper, it's sort of the wherewithal and the resources. And, the, and, and when I say resources, not just money, but people. The donor coordinators here are phenomenal to have to explain this and, and recognize that it's slightly different of, you know, sort of taking someone who's deceased and, and manipulating them. And, you know, when people are dying or unexpectedly, it's very, I think, very hard conversation. So having those kind of donor coordinators, I don't, I think are tough. It's a tough business and having people like that are really essential. So I don't suspect that this will be something that's easy. And I, I didn't really get in there. The methods kind of go through 
the, the kind of logistics they had, although that wasn't really the emphasis, but certainly would be an interesting uh, talk or presentation to attend to if, if you had if we had ATC uh, in person, it would be one of those where you'd like to pop in and just hear how they did this, the technical aspects. Great. Well, thanks, Roz. Thanks, Sharad. And um, I think that will close June's AJT highlights. And we should be doing one on COVID soon as a follow-up to the one done in April. We'll have more to talk about there. And then, as always, we'll have we'll continue to have monthly uh, regular AJT papers in this podcast. So take care, everybody. Thanks, Josh. Talk to you soon. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter.